Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Research Project Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Language and Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Aya Homme from the University of Manchester to discuss family planning, looking at how Japan's history of medical science has influenced policy and its impact on the current aging population. Aya unpacks historical attitudes in Japan towards childbearing held by individuals and nation, and explains that through scientific thoughts of the time, such as eugenics, much can be understood about attitudes today in Japan and East Asia. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Aya. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Okay, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> so first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Right. Okay. So my area of expertise is the history of medicine and allied sciences. I have a specific interest and a kind of research focus on reproduction and population in modern Japan. But my interest over the past years actually has expanded a little bit to look at Japan's history as it's located in the regional history of science, technology, and medicine in Northeastern Asia, as well as in the global history of medicine and healthcare. And as part of that, I've been working on reinterpreting post-war Japan's family planning um, for today's topic. So looking at that by contextualizing it in terms of post-war Japan's engagement with health diplomacy and with the politics of international health and also overseas development assistance. So my interest in the history of medicine, where did that come from? So initially, I suppose my family background plays a part. So my mother is or was uh, happily retired now, but um, she was a nurse. And before she got married, she used to work for a gynecological, obstetric and gynecological clinic in the 1960s. And so so she, she would be talking about Stories, not many, not much, but that kind of fueled my interest. I suppose that's my personal reason. But also at the at the university, I learned um, kind of ethnographic methodology, uh, anthropology of you know childbirth, and that really grabbed my attention. And also, I was interested in um, kind of development aids um, in healthcare and family planning as part of it. I don't know where that comes from, but I was interested in it. So I actually was subscribing to this journal that was published by the Japanese Organization for International Cooperation in Family Planning. It's called JOICEF. Uh, it still exists even today and um, I'm very active in the field of global health, uh, primary health care and maternal and child health. So that led me to look at, in, in my current work, I'm looking at um, this organization, this JOICEF, its history, um, and its role in global family planning uh, development as in the middle of the 20th century. So that was my undergraduate years. And then I went on to do master's and PhD, carrying my interest in childbirth culture and history. And so for my 
MA, I looked at the role of childbirth amulet you get from the Shinto shrine and how women felt with the amulet. And so I did the um, survey research, I suppose, uh, for my master's degree. And then for a PhD, I looked at the role of midwives in uh, modern medicine since the AG period. So um, AG starts in the 1860s and looking at the professional development, but also their roles in the society and politics until roughly the 1930s or so. After that, I had a, a bit of a meandering going on after that, but I finally got the Welcome Trust grant that enabled me to actually go back to what I was interested in during my university years uh, to Joseph. And so with that grant, I was able to look at that and now trying to wrap that up uh, for such a long time. But um, the um, title of the project was called um, Family Planning, Health Promotion and Global Medicine in 1945-1995, the activities of Japanese health campaigners around the world. And yeah, so that's, that's me and that's how, I, how my interest came about. Thank you. So Japan's top heavy demographic issue has been touched on before in this series with Dr. Eva Kavezia, in particular looking at the rapidly increasing elderly population. This will be our first time discussing Japan's falling birth rate, however, so could you start off explaining some of the historical reasons behind that? Yeah, thanks for this question. So I would say I start with uh, what um, I suppose specialists in, in other areas might say. So, you know, demographers and other sociologists today might say that the gap between um, social dynamics that are informed by the rigid gender norm and actual realities or changing realities of surrounding women and men's lives after the Second World War is one of the major reasons for the falling birth rate today. And many others have pointed out that, you know, women's work opportunities expanded over the post-war era. And, you know, this was in part accelerated by the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Law that was, in, you know, introduced or enacted in 1986. So on the one hand, there's that. But on the other, social relations were very much defined by the idea of gender division of labor that assigned women the task of you know, housekeeping and childcare. So the argument emerged in the policy discussion in the 1990s was that women's struggles to juggle between work and life might be the reason why women hesitated to get married and have children. And on top of that, financial hardship arising from economic stagnation since the 1990s in Japan has been pointed out another reason for the declining birth rate. So this is an example of the historical reasons that social scientists have given to account for the declining birth rate today. Now, but being a historian, I'll give what I think is a typical historian's answer, which is that, so before talking about historical reasons behind today's low birth rate, we need to recognize that reasons for the falling birth rate historically actually shifted over time. And the reasons given also changed depending on who are articulating them. 
So Japan's birth rates actually, if you look at historically, if you they, they actually went up and down <laughs> over the course of the modern period, ever since the government began to systematically collate and publish vital statistics annually since 1899. Now, demographers have looked at this, this long-term trend and identified a pattern. So they use the index called the total fertility rate to account for the population trend. According to the OECD, so total fertility rate is the total number of children that would be born to each woman if she were to live to the end of her childbearing years and give birth to children in alignment with the prevailing age-specific fertility rates. And it's considered that the total fertility rate of 2.1 children, so if you if um, a woman give birth to two children, roughly, then it will lead to a relatively stable population. It won't grow much, but it won't contract much either. So demographers adopted this index and described that the rate was very high in Japan until roughly the period immediately after the Second World War. Um, sometime even going over for 4.0. That's quite a lot. So in a year, women could be having children, you know, give birth to four children, right? And then, so over the 1950s, that declined rapidly uh, to the extent it went down to 2.0 in 1960. Um, and in the 1960s, the rate was actually going up slightly um, Apart from 1966, do you know the reason? Have you heard about that reason, the, the dip? There? So there is a dip in, in the birth rate in, in 1966. Um, no, you, you haven't heard about it? I haven't it. heard that before, no. Oh, right. Okay. So that year, it was the year of the fire horse. And there's the myth that um, girl babies born in that year would have a temper uh, not suitable for amicable marriage, oh. <laughs> for instance. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was a, that was the you know the age before the you know the echo um, you know where you can actually identify that that allowed you know that allowed you to see the baby's you know image mm. right and it allows the um, the specialist to uh, you know tell the gender of the baby. So um, what you know married women did, um, married couples did at the time is to avoid having that baby <laughs> that year. Wow. But anyway, yeah, so it was going up a little bit. And then there's a dip in 1966. But it was actually going up, up until the early 1970s. And during the period in the early 1970s, the, the, the rate peaked, actually. Um, it actually went going over 3.0. It's hard to imagine from, you know, our point of view today. And that, that peak was because the baby boomers who were born immediately after the war had babies then. So, but then since the mid-1970s, since then onward, the rate actually went down the hill to the extent that it went below the replacement level of, you know, two point, total fertility rate of 2.1. So in terms of policy, um, there was nothing going on, but... Um, but in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a kind of media panic over the total fertility rate that hit in 1.57 in 1989. Now, this was the record low since the Second World War, even lower than the rate in 1966, the year of the fire horse. So 
that triggered the policy making process. Uh, I suppose I'm going to talk about that later. But in any rate, so in term, looking at the, um, the the birth rate itself, the rate even went down further in the in the 1990s and 2000s. It hit the lowest in record in 2005 at 1.26, but now uh, going up a little bit since then and hovering around 1.5, still very much, you know, below the replacement level. So demographers looked at the this long-term trend from they call high birth to low birth and claim that this fits neatly to the model they call the demographic transition model. But I'd like to point out the the birth rate even declined even during the so-called high birth period during the uh, pre-war time, especially notable was between 1902 and 1906, and then again 1912 and 1919. And in fact, what we tend to forget is that at the time as well, this caused quite a sensation among the experts. So, at the time, many experts agreed that wars, so Japan uh, had war against Russia in 1904 and 1905, and then participated um, in the First World War, although kind of um, tangentially. So that played a part in the temporary decline. But in fact, they also wondered if this decline represented the beginning of the modern demographic transition um, towards this perennial low birth rate, right? So is that, is that the sign that um, Japan is, you know, moving from high birth to low birth? Because that a similar trend was happening in Western Europe. And they were really, demographers were really, uh, in, in Europe, were really worried that this, you know, declining birth rate might lead to a kind of like a racial suicide, was, that, was the word that, um, that was used at the time in the early 20th century. So among... Many experts, among those experts, economist Takata Yasuma, for instance, um, he argued that uh, the declining birth rate was temporary and didn't represent the beginning of this you know, demographic transition because it was an outcome of the economic situation at the time. Of course, he would say that as an economist, right? But on the other hand, health officials and medical doctors looked to biological reasons, such as the spread of tuberculosis, which was brought by the industrialization uh, for the declining birth rates and, and such. So interestingly, there's um, one expert I, I looked at in the past, uh, Teruoka Gito. He was, a, he was a former health official and medical intellectual. Uh, he was also known as the father of social, medicine, uh, social hygiene and occupational medicine in Japan. Now, uh, Teruoka, although he was, a, he was a medical specialist, he discredited this biological reasoning, uh, but instead focused on the lower birth rates in cities and argued that economic and psychological factors that emerged as a result of the urbanization, which Japan was, you know, the urbanization kind of characterized a kind of social structure at the time, or at least um, uh, affected it. And so he thought that this urbanization became an inhibiting factor for women to have babies. But generally, uh, interestingly, compared to today, experts at the beginning of the 20th century put more emphasis on the kind of sociobiological factors to account for the falling birth rate. This could be explained by, for instance, the popularity of eugenic thought uh, among the intellectuals at the time. 
So as you can see from these examples, so reasons presented within a historical movement really kind of were different, they varied. And even over the course of history, um, these reasons or reasoning changed depending on the really kind of circumstances surrounding the falling birth rate as a demographic phenomenon. So kind of long-winded way, but yeah. Yeah, thank you. I'm just curious, when you discuss the rhetoric around why the birth rate is rising or falling, I don't know if you're echoing the rhetoric of, of, of government policy, but it seems to put the onus on women not wanting families as opposed to to men, whereas the same factors such as economic hardships and poor work-life balance can equally affect men making the choice to start a family too. Is that not addressed? Um, you're absolutely right there. So in the early 20th century, as well as today, women are always in policy language are certainly associated with these issues of childcare, uh, childbearing, childcare. Obviously, uh, the, the assumption is that women are the only ones, right? I mean, the, 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 uh, biologically, that they um, they can uh, they can have babies, um, not men. But yeah, this kind of this biologically sort of biological feature uh, of you know, or quality of women. Obviously, there's a that that understanding shape. Um, yeah, the, the, like like you said, the rhetoric of um, um, policy policy uh, rhetoric within the policy discussion on on um, on yeah, you say population, which is yeah, like you said, it's not only about women, but there's an overwhelming focus on women and their welfare. Um, and because of that, uh, because of their biological function, I suppose. And so, yeah, uh, in the in the early 20th century as well, women became a policy subject in a way, uh, and also singled out as a demographic subject, not necessarily because of their only reproductive function, but one of the things uh, because of um, their role in childcare. So, one of the ways in which uh, women became a focus in, in policy was because health officials in the early 20th century noticed there was a declining physical power or taidoku, physical aptitude of the Japanese. And, and they thought that manifested in the health or illness and you know, ill health of children and men, young adult men who were both regarded as very important for the nation, right? Um, men were important because they would, uh, they were the soldiers and they were the workers, but children are very important for the future of Japan, right? Mm. And women became important through this association, right? Through not necessarily because the government officials cared about women's welfare but well uh, less so um you know relative children were important yeah children were very important yeah. and that's how yeah women's welfare became um, became a subject um i don't want to give a, a wrong impression that the, nobody cared about women's welfare <laughs> you know, within the government but um evidence shows a different story yeah. yeah. So those who follow news from Japan today may be familiar with the stories of top politicians telling women that they must have more babies for the country. Yet, what policy has been implemented to encourage an increase in birth rates and how effective has that been? 
Yeah. Okay. So that actually nicely ties into right. It ties from uh, from the discussion we had just yeah. just now. So uh, to start with, I, I I must stress that these stories by the politicians are n- not at all new, <laughs> and they also mirror sexism, right? Which really recalcitrantly, you know, they just lives in you know exists in Japan. Almost perpetuate itself despite all these movements, and hopefully, those movements will change in the near future. But anyway, so I, I believe, although it is the case, but I think it's a bit of a jump, I think, to connect so these politicians' words and the policy itself that's intended to boost the, fa- the birth rate, right? Although it, these words. Uh, an important background that you know shape policy discussion. So, although this kind of, kind of sexist remarks and and policy in both cases they are based on this logic that women should give birth and and this sexist logic was there because the policy initiative for the falling birth rate emerged in the 1990s. So, I think what I wanted to say is that you know you can't really connect these two things. Together, because you know, obviously, sexism did exist even before the 1990s, when the policy initiative or policy making initiative started that intended to boost birth rate in Japan. Right. So, uh, what I wanted to say is that there are additional factors other than the sexism that drove the policy in- initiative since the 1990s, and. I think that one of the major factors, and you know, the elephant in the room, is this specific idea of, I suppose, ethno-nationhood that was ingrained in the discourse of population and national economy in Japan. So there's a the the assumption that the population contributing to Japan's economic life should be primarily Japanese. Um, I mean, Japanese nationals and the Japanese women should contribute to its economy, not only through their work, but importantly, through their reproductive function. This kind of logic consistently supported the policy initiative, even since the pre-war period, right? So I was talking about that um, earlier, you know, about why women became a policy subject in the early 20th century. And of course, incidentally, um, this is what drives a low profile of immigration provisions to solve the labor issues in Japan, right? Um, Slightly kind of off the topic uh, from uh, the discussion of family planning here. But anyway, so so in the in the nineties, the biggest trigger actually uh, was, as I hinted earlier, was this total fertility rate of one point five seven in nineteen eighty nine. Right? So when the media actually talked about it, they called it one point five seven shock. So it was that shocking. <laughs> they kind of obviously the media would exaggerate, but. It really was a shock. So it almost forcibly kind of made policymakers act on the case. You know, the birth rates were declining since the 1970s. But up until then, the general view, especially in policymaking, was quite optimistic, thinking that women would eventually get married and have children, according to the social norm. And even though the fertility rate, you know, 
<laughs> didn't actually show it that way, right? It was in fact declining for nearly for over two decades. Mm. So in any case, so since the 1990s, various policy packages have been implemented to tackle the problem of fertility decline. I won't go into detail because there are so many and this issue of population policy. Well, by the way, specialists and as well as policymakers don't like to use the term population policy nowadays, uh, as they used to say, you know, quite liberally, especially during the war, so jinko seisaku, precisely because of this association with the wartime population policy. So there were lots of policy packages, right, um, to tackle the problem of declining fertility since the 1990s. So, like I said, you know, I won't, I won't go into detail too much. You know, if the listeners can uh, read Japanese, uh, demographer Maurice Mirier at the National Institute of Population and Social Security Survey has given a really comprehensive review of the policies since the 1990s, so um, they can consult that. But just to pick up the major ones, the first policy package was the interministerial, uh, they called it Angel Plan. So th- this was presented in 1994. And then the new Angel Plan, they called it Shin Enzeru Plan. So it's new Angel Plan was I- issued in 1999 as an action program to respond to the basic policy for promoting measures against declining fertility. So this is a this was a Japanese term. And the new angel plan was followed by various plans in the in the 2000s, including the plus one policy in 2002. And following that, the basic law was established so for promoting measures against declining fertility and the act for measures to support the development of the next generation. So this is again the, the name of the law. They were both issued in 2003 as the legal back to the policy to boost fertility. Now, since then, there are lots of guidelines. So guidelines for measures against declining fertility were established in 2004, 2010, 2015, along with various other social and labour policy measures that were intended to boost fertility. Now, the areas covered by these policies are so expansive that I cannot really fully describe within this limited time. But it suffice to say that, so the firstly, the adjustment of work environment, enabling a balance between work and childcare, and also various childcare and parental benefits, and also uh, are consistently presented as core measures, among others. So, and for the question of how effective these policies have been, so I feel inadequate to answer the question. As I described earlier, the birth rate declined until 2005, despite the policies, <laughs> and it went up, <laughs> you know, slightly, although slightly uh, since then with the policies. So looking at the trend, it seems policies exist almost independent of the demographic trends. So from that, mm. I could say policies were not effective, but I don't currently have enough tools or evidence for answering either yes or no. So I guess uh, as in other demographic phenomena, there are multiple factors that influence the trend in birth rates. And so, you know, we can't really single out policies on its own as a corrective measure. It sounds like it's something of a imperfect science trying to work out what exactly affects birth rates to begin with and then to try and make policies that to, to change it the way you want it to. It's, there's so much going on there that it's 
difficult to narrow down. <laughs> yeah, well, I, th- I suppose, you know, like in, um, in policy studies, of course, you know, that, that it, it is a big challenge, isn't it? You know, how do we actually, you know, establish effective social policies? But then, you know, historians would say, well, actually, you know, social phenomena are so complicated, you know, can't just invest in one thing and then it, it fixes everything, right? It has to take into account of various kind of facets of life. And, and especially that's particularly relevant in phenomena such as birth rate. So going on from that, uh, in your upcoming book, Science for Governing Japan's Population, you argue that many scholars have attempted to explain the declining birth rates through gender, sexuality, ideology of family, social policy, political economy, and institutional history. Why has it taken this long for academics to consider past scientific thinking as a factor in the birth rate, and what does this approach reveal? Yeah, no, thank you so much for bringing up the book. So I suppose, you know, the main title for today's podcast is Family Planning, but why are we talking about population? And this is a question that drove me to this book. So like I said, at the beginning, I was working on family planning and Japan's role in global family planning movement and in the 20th century. And I started to write a book on that. Uh, And then it dawned on me that, you know, at the time, so talking about kind of 1960s, 70s, so experts or people, you know, the actors I was studying, they were using the term population or jinko in Japanese and family planning, kazoku keikaku. So these terms are almost like an inseparable unit. Um, So they would come up always at the same time. So Jinko population dot family planning. So I was thinking, wow, I need to unpack that one. (laughs) I need to look at how population as a concept emerged in Japan, in Japan's history, in modern history, and how it got attached to family planning. And so that's how I started it was supposed to be a chapter one of the book I was writing, but turned into a book, um, which isn't that. <laughs> I suppose that's how 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 things develop in sometimes can develop in the academia. So that's why we're obviously talking about population in this podcast as well, right? On on family planning. So thanks for asking that question. Uh, so in the in the book, I was looking at how um, Japanese states' efforts to manage its population. And the development of population science or or science of population as as a branch of modern science, how they kind of interacted with each other. So I'm looking at the interplay between population management and science of population. So, yeah, um, so I was looking at how past scientific thinking shaped the discourse on population including discourse around falling birth rates and how that filtered through the policy discussion and eventually certain policies, you know, birth control or population expansion policies or were enacted or not. Right? So that, that's what I'm looking at. And yeah, it did, it feels like it took a long time, in fact, for scholars to look at 
this question, uh, you know, or look at look at science. But to answer your first question, I actually wonder that myself, right? Why did it take so long <laughs> for Japan specialists to consider that uh, past scientific thought as a factor for shaping the discourse of population and including the discourse surrounding the falling birth rate and how scientists as political advisors or actors use their expertise to shape population policies. Now, actually, this is even more surprising when, if you look at a bigger academic trend, because there were great works with a similar approach. They were coming up in 2000s and 2010s, so, but looking at different national contexts. So one of the greatest examples is a book called Just One Child by uh, Professor Susan Greenhouse at Harvard. So Professor Greenhouse with that in the book examines how different scientific thoughts competed in People's Republic of China in the 1970s and, or 60s and 70s, and eventually the cybernetic rationale presented by the group of scientists informed China's so-called one-child policy, which was in place um, since the late 1970s. So finally almost uh, abolished now. But to get back to your question, I think, yeah, my shortest answer is I don't quite know <laughs> why. <laughs> But, <laughs> but I, I want to also stress that the, this book obviously didn't come out of the vacuum either, right? So in fact, over the 20 teens or last decade, some really great works were coming out from early career scholars of modern Japanese history, such as Aiko Ishii and Suji Nii. You know, they produced fantastic uh, dissertations, specifically looking at this population discourse and kind of scientific knowledge and the issue of um, government and governing of Japan's population. And so this book is actually built on their superb research as well. So you also asked, how does or what does this approach taken in the book reveal? So to answer your questions, so like I said, the approach I've taken is to examine the interplay between the development of population sciences and modern forms of governance in Japan. And I think this can reveal actually quite a lot of things, but for Japan scholars or whoever is interested in, in Japan, I'd like to highlight two points. So the first is the important role of bureaucrats, and especially those called technocrats or gijutsukanryo or gikan in, in Japanese. So their important role uh, in shaping policy-relevant scientific knowledge on population and the second is the precariousness or messiness that characterized how the policy-relevant scientific knowledge was made. So if I could give you examples, so one of them, so for the first point about the role, you know, important role of technocrats, so I, one of the chapters looked at uh, this individual called Koya Yoshio, so Koya Yoshio was a trained doctor, so medical researcher who uh, graduated from uh, the University of Tokyo in the 1920s, became uh, first an uh, academic professor, but moved into the kind of health administration when the Ministry of Health and Welfare was established in 1938. And he was a big-time eugenicist, really believed in eugenics. And in fact, 
was it heavily involved in drafting the pre-war national eugenic law that was in place in 1940. And after the war, Koya, as in many technocrats at the time, they were actually, you know, they weren't trialed unless they took part in high profile cases. But so Koya was almost like unscathed, in fact, thrived after the war and became the director of the National Institute of Public Health, uh, which was the the government, a very important uh, public health organization, uh, the government's uh, organization institute. And he became the policy advisor, so played a crucial role in the birth control policy that was in place in the early 1950s. So in one of the chapters, what I showed was how he used his political position as the, you know, really kind of high profile position to influence reproductive policies. But he actually used his scientific expertise or medical expertise to influence that policy. So within the National Institute of Public Health, in fact, he managed to create a department called Department of Public Health Demography, which actually basically did family planning research or eugenic research, research that he was interested in, and also the research he thought would be necessary, the kind of policy-relevant research, which would give, I suppose, evidence, right? Kind of evidence-based policy, talking about evidence-based policy. He was one of the forerunners, I suppose, in Japan. But yeah, so the department then would set up birth control pilot projects in villages, kind of set up model villages, and then they did longitudinal studies of birth control campaigns or giving out to people different kinds of contraceptives and see the effect it had on birth rates and abortion rates and use that, you know, use the result to advise the government. And Koya, almost like seamlessly, he, he was quite successful in, in influencing government policies at the time uh, until the 1960s when, yeah, he retired from that position. I see. So despite calls for an increase of birth rates in Japan, today there is a taboo around birth control, making it difficult to acquire long-term contraceptives. Has this always been the attitude towards them since their widespread introduction in the 1960s? Mm. Yeah, so I suppose by taboo around birth control, you mean the taboo around specific kinds of contraceptives. And I'm guessing that, you know, um, contraceptive pill and the intrauterine device called or IUD. So these contraceptives are underused in Japan. They're extremely popular in other countries, but Japan. And it's got obviously history behind that. So instead of that, talking about the 60s or so, abortion and even the sterilization, they were not taboo, but were practiced quite widely. Certainly abortions are less so than sterilization, but they were regarded as a necessary evil. So in terms of the contraceptive pill, sexism was obviously one of the biggest reasons why the government was hesitant to introduce or approve the distribution of that. The official rhetoric was that, you know, if women are allowed to 
access a pill, then they would be they would have sex, and you know the um, that'd be terrible. And <laughs> as much as yeah, yeah, that'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> now they're kind of like you know obviously that you know especially they were concerned about single people, right? Married young women having sex. How could they do that? <laughs> so that's, that's one of them. Um, but another is what Tiana Nogren has once described as the interest group politics. So some of the, within the policy, there were clearly groups who were against that, uh, the introduction of the um, contraceptive pill. And one of them was the doctors, practitioners, because they would benefit from Abortion, right? Because abortion was a was a lucrative business. So Diana Nogren has pointed that out. Now, in terms of the IUD, it's really a big question, and especially uh, IUD was and is quite a popular method in other parts of East Asia, so China, South Korea, and especially Taiwan. And the reason for the and, and Japan, the uptake is very very low. Now, I've actually written a paper on that. Um, and again, like a contraceptive pill, the low distribution of the IUD has got to do with internal politics among the medical researchers. Now, this time among the researchers themselves, that's partly because the guy who is credited for the invention of the IUD in Japan, Ota Tendei, he was a sexologist, but uh, quite a politically active um, medical doctor as well. So he invented what's called the Ota Ring uh, in the 1930s, and it was distributed quite widely. But because of his political position in, in the in the pre-war time, he was certainly associated with socialism, labor movement, and because of that, in the in the 30s, the government banned the use of that. And the ban wasn't lifted until quite late, until the 1970s. And I argue that Ota Tenle's political position was, at, in fact, played a big part. But something I want to mention here is that litigation cases against the state that came out in Japan since 2018 against the involuntary sterilization in various mental health and Hansen's diseases institutions that were conducted under the auspices of the eugenic protection law. So, as I mentioned earlier, sterilization was conducted after the war based on the eugenic principle. So this law I just mentioned, a eugenic protection law was established in 1948. And the aim of that was to stop or prevent the birth of people with undesirable biological dispositions. So under that law, individuals who were deemed to have those undesirable genetic traits would undergo sterilization. So they wouldn't pass the traits onto the next generation of the Japanese. Like I said, it was regarded as a necessary evil, but according to the ethical standard today, obviously it is unacceptable, right? So you can say that today the historical case looks like a taboo almost. And this actually indicates a historical analysis is necessary to really understand how our values kind of vis-a-vis -vis birth control and broadly, but you know, specifically sterilization 
or birth control and family planning even, and, and, and specifically sterilization changed over time, right? But in fact, if you look at the history of reproduction and family planning is not all fun and um, it sometimes can be quite controversial, like this case, in fact, shows. So we don't actually have systematically organized kind of data or archives that facilitates historical research. So, but in fact, um, and really important initiatives are on the way. And, and this research project in Kyoto, in fact, uh, uh, Ritsumeikan University under Professor Yoko Matsubara is one initiative that, so they're trying to create archives around these sterilization cases under the eugenic protection law and, and, so I'm currently involved in that remotely, but uh, will take a more active role next year when I'm hopefully uh, spend a nearly a year there. So oh, fingers crossed for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully I can I can go there. Really, <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, I got the funding, but yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if I can. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions today, Aya. It's been a real pleasure. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? So, yeah, so this would, you know, get us back to the first question you asked and my answer uh, I gave, which is about that, that I'm currently working on, on this project on the family planning in the, in the 60s. And so I'm currently working on the book, another book. So the, the chapter one, which turned into the book, is now really kind of in production. So <laughs> working on that. <laughs> the book I in- originally intended to finish, the tentative title is Managing Asia's Population, Japan in the Transnational Family Planning Network in Global Health. And, and I, in, in that, I study Japanese family planning programs, which are packaged as development A's, and which were unfolded in underdeveloped or developing countries from the late 1960s. So under kind of overseas medical or technical cooperation and in the context of international health. So yeah, I'm looking at various initiatives revolving around JOYCEF and other uh, organizations. But uh, the one I'm particularly interested in is the technical cooperation in family planning and maternal and child health between Japan and People's Republic of China, which started in the 1980s. Uh, this is a really exciting period in, for historian because, you know, like I said earlier, People's Republic of China uh, at the time just issued this one-child policy. And, you know, clearly Japan had um, an involvement, albeit indirectly. And, and uh, kind of intellectually, I think that this case study is quite important because with that, I can tell a lot the challenges are kind of historical understanding of Cold War medical diplomacy and Japan's position in yeah, global politics of health in history. So that's that's what I'm doing at the moment. Excellent. Well, I'll look forward to you then. Thank you for joining me again today. Aya, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You can find a link to Aya's research profile in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japaninnorwich.org or on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. Next week we'll be joined by Caitlin Nugoritz, anthropologist of religion and a PhD candidate in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultural Studies at UC Santa Barbara to discuss the global appeal of Shinto in the digital era. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.